Welcome to The Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. I have a delightful Neville Goddard lecture. Today we're reading We Are Witnesses, delivered on December 9th, 1966. The concept of the witness in relation to the Gospels and the Bible and awakening and consciousness has a unique flavor in the way that Neville addresses the idea that we are witnesses. We are witnesses to God. We are witnesses to our imaginations. And there will come one who bears witness. We are witnesses by Neville Goddard. We are witnesses. Everyone is a witness to God's promise. We're told in the 44th chapter of Isaiah, in fact, it starts with a question, who has announced from of old things the things to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44, 7. So he tells every one of us, you and I, we're all in God in the beginning. This is not an accident. We're all contained within him. It's a purpose. It's a plan. We saw exactly what God's purpose was. Every one of us, no one left out. Now what is a witness? Witness is one who has first-hand information of a fact or an event. We're told in scripture that the evidence of two or three, if they should agree, it is conclusive. If two or three witnesses agree in testimony, it is conclusive, but you cannot on the testimony of one man. There must be two or more. And we are told that scripture is God's testimony. This is what man must testify to. And he testifies to it by telling the story, not as hearsay, but of his own personal experience. Here we find the words, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have actually seen and touched with our hand of the word of life, that declare we unto you. 1 John 1, 1. There now are the witnesses. Now, call the next witness. May I tell you, everyone in this world will be called to testify to the truth of God's word as revealed in scripture. According to some rabbinical principle, and it really stands forever, what is not written in scripture is non-existent. That seems stupid, doesn't it? This room is not written in scripture and we're told it's non-existent. My name is not in scripture. Your name is not in scripture. A marriage is not in scripture. The whole vast world is not in scripture. And what is not written in scripture is non-existent. And we're called to testify, not to anything here in any court we know, but only to the truth of Scripture to the Word of God. That's all that we're called upon to do. There isn't a Pope's name in Scripture. There isn't a Rabbi's name in Scripture. No one. Rockefeller's name is not in Scripture. Our President is not in Scripture. The Kings aren't in Scripture. None of these things are in Scripture, and we're told they are non-existent. We're only called upon to testify to the word of Scripture, and God's play unfolds in us. How? The whole plan is contained in what is called Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ in us fulfills scripture. And he said to them, all that is written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And Christ in you is the hope of glory. Luke 24, 44. So Christ in man slowly unwinds himself, unfolds in man, and fulfills scripture for no man can enter that state of glory until he fulfills scripture. And every word is fulfilled in us, in every child born of woman. Now, here in the 20th chapter of Luke, we're coming to the end, and he asks a question. He looked at them. Having looked at all of them, he said, what does this text of scripture mean? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. If anyone falls on it, they are broken into pieces. If it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Luke 20:18. This is the Lord's doing, and it is glorious in our eyes. No one had it. No one understood it. But I have it home. I wouldn't want to exaggerate at least a dozen different commentary works on Scripture. There isn't an exegesis that touches it. No commentary title. Any attempt goes so far, far away from it, they do not know what it is all about. Now let me tell you from my own personal experience, God is your own wonderful human imagination. That is God. And God and Christ are one. He speaks of a rock, of the rock that begot you. You are unmindful and have forgotten the God who gave you birth. Deuteronomy 32.18 He equates the rock with God. In the letters of Paul, the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he speaks of this rock. And we all drank from this supernatural rock which followed us, and the rock was Christ. Verse 4 So he equates now Christ with the rock. And the two with God, God is Christ. Now what does he mean? If I fall upon this rock, that I will be broken into pieces. And if the rock falls upon me, I am crushed. Listen carefully. I tell you, your own wonderful human imagination is God. That is Christ in you. That one day will awake. And you'll have life in it. The whole vast world will become alive in you. There's nothing but Christ. There's nothing but God. Now what does it mean? If I fall upon it, the word fall is to light upon. As you read in scripture, just to light upon. The word stone or rock means that which is steadfast, that which endures, that which abides, that which seems so secure, that is so sure in this world. Now here in this room right now, here we are. And we all agreed to dream in concert. Same room. Our reactions differ, but the same room. The mountain is the same mountain. We all see it and our reactions differ. In the mountains of life, the problems to overcome. And I know what your father did. You know my father. They all seem so real and so abiding and so solid you can't overcome it. When we are what we call awake. So in this state of consciousness... We all agreed to dream in concert and see the same thing and play the part all in concert. But by night, by dream, we are hurled each into a separate world, completely broken as we fall asleep. Let man fall asleep and he is hurled by his dreams into a separate world. 
and then he conjures from the depth of his soul what he may expect when he returns to this that is so solidly real and so unmovable and so abiding. And I tell you, all this world that is so real and so abiding and so unmovable is just as much imagination as that into which we fall when we are fragmented at night, every one hurled by a dream into a separate world. And we bring it back, all of our broken self, and we bring back all these pieces into a picture and try to unravel it, try to interpret it. We'll be confronted with this, and here is the rock that now crushes. The rock falls upon us. We are crushed. We are crushed by this seeming immovable object round about. And we fall at night into sleep, and we are broken into pieces, each into his separate world. Now you need not accept this huge rock and dream anymore in conflict. You can change it without altering for others the seed, without altering and destroying the great conflict. You need not accept as fact anything in this world. Then you begin to awaken no matter where you are born in the world, no matter what a person is doing in this world. You don't accept it as final. You simply will not. And then you take it up in your mind's eye and rearrange it. When you rearrange it in the depth of your soul, then you are broken at night. Until you become conscious, you don't rearrange it to your own satisfaction, but it tells you so much when you come back to this awful rock that crushes you when you see it. So the witness, you are my witnesses, who has announced from of old the things to come. Let them tell us what is yet to be. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old? Have I not declared it? And you are my witnesses. Now if I am a witness, then I must experience. You told it to me, but now I must experience it. You told it to me and executed it in the written word, for the Bible is now personified as a person. Everything written about me is in that book. Everything written about you is in that book. So you are told, now that I know that all that is written here is all about me. So everything written in the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then scripture becomes a person and it speaks, and we are told in the third chapter of Galatians, and scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen. It's translated the Gentile, but the word Gentile in Hebrew, which is goyim, and the word nation and the word heathen are the same. So you can translate the word goyim as nation, Gentile, or heathen. So they chose to use the word Gentile. There was no Gentile in that day. Either you were a heathen or you were simply one who accepted the law of God. So here we find the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. The scripture is preaching. So the scripture is telling. It's become a person and is preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Now we're told that all of us are collected in Abraham the father of the multitudes, the father of the nations. We all entered that state of faith and we heard this story. Everyone heard it. And everyone must become eventually the witness to the truth of what God foretold. What did he foretell? Not a thing about your position in this world or my position. If I became the biggest aspidistra in the world, it's only a big shadow, meaning nothing. People pay billions 
to publicize their name and build monuments to themselves. And then they vanish, leaving not a trace behind. But something in them will come out and one day witness to the eternal word of God. So only as we witness the truth of God's word have we really done anything in this entire wonderful universe of ours. So I tell you, these are the things you will witness. You will witness a drama in four acts. It will have a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue will last well up until the embrace of the risen Christ. When he embraces you and you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you will answer only from Scripture. You will not answer any word of Shakespeare, no word of the great giants of this world in literature. Not one word will you utter of theirs. You will answer from Scripture every question that's asked of you. The response is Scripture. From then, for 30 years, it is the intensified prologue. It comes to an end so suddenly you have no time to observe it. And then four wonderful scenes, the great plan, and that takes three and a half years. It culminates with the great descent of the Spirit upon you, that which comes in the bodily form of a dove. Then after that is an epilogue. The epilogue is simply fulfilling scripture night after night, passage after passage unfolds within you. But the drama is over with the descent of the dove and then the epilogue and played based upon the need of those who are about to awaken. And he sends you still locked in your physical garment because of the need of those who are breaking the shell. And this is the witness of God. We are all witnesses and everyone eventually will witness the truth of God's word. It doesn't matter what a man does physically in the world. He plays all the parts. There isn't a part he doesn't play, be it the thief or the one from whom it was stolen, be it the billionaire or the pauper, not a thing. But bear in mind, if, and no one answered, because they couldn't answer it, the Sanhedrin plotted to trap him and then sent spies in upon what he said. He would say something and it would seem to be an offense against the secular world. Then they would trap him, but he had to play the part. But if what they heard, or what they thought they heard, and they accused him of being king. So you are the king, he said. You said it, I didn't. But if I am delivered into your hands, he said, he who delivered me is the guilty one. You could do nothing to me were it not given to you from above. The whole drama is being played from above. He said, I am not in this world. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. You'll hit that rock and it will crush. You'll fall night after night as you will. And it will simply break you into pieces. Every night we fall asleep and we're scattered into pieces and form our personal drama in our separate worlds and bring it back with the hope that he, in the depth of our own self, who is Jesus Christ, has spoken to us in this wonderful symbolism and given us the ability to interpret. Sometimes it needs interpretation. It seldom comes in a simple, simple manner. But I will tell you everything recorded you are going to experience. Will you experience the crucifixion? Yes. And may I tell you, there is no pain attached to it that the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which is followed by the crucifixion in the gospel, and he moves triumphantly into Jerusalem, into the city of God. It was there that he was crucified. And may I tell you, the night that you move fulfilling scripture, 
into Jerusalem means in fulfillment of the 42nd Psalm. And I led them in a triumphant march into the city, the holy city, and they were all in this gay procession. Then as you move into this marvelous city, this crowd that is so gay and so marvelous, and someone next to you will hear a voice. The voice will come out of space, and the voice will say, and God walks within them. Who else could walk with you? I couldn't be animated were it not that God animates me. He's my breath. And God walks with them, and the woman asks the question, where is he? If God walks with us, where is he? And the voice answers, at your side. And turning to her side, she looked into your face, and she will call you by name, and she'll be hysterical because she knows you on this level and knows all of your weaknesses, all of your limitations. Because she knows you so intimately, she'll become hysterical in her laughter. Then as she calls you by name and asks the voice, do you mean that calls you by name is God? Then will come the voice, but not for her ears or for the ears of the tens of thousands that you're leading in this gay procession, only for you. And it comes from the depths of your soul. What a voice. And the voice will say to you, I laid myself down within you to sleep as I slept. I dreamed a dream. I dreamed. And then maybe you will not break it as I did. I became so ecstatically happy that I couldn't resist responding and reacting to the emotion. For he's sleeping within me. That God laid himself down within me to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed. And I knew what he was dreaming. He is dreaming that he's I. And when he wakes, he is I. But before I could hear the final sentence that I knew, I now was able to describe in that fantastic height or depth. Call it what you will. Finally, I returned here. And I am a sea of vortices. A vortex. A vortex. A vortex. A vortex. And my two souls of the feet are vortices. Six vortices. But what ecstasy, what joy. You can't describe the thrill that is yours when you are nailed to this cross, when you wake on the bed pondering this fantastic experience in the fulfillment of Scripture. Now you are a witness to this story that God became man. You are man, generic man. We're all man, so God became man, that man may become God. So he actually becomes man in the most literal sense and nails himself upon this cross. And then he wakes in us. Then he gives us the most wonderful way of knowing, only through his son, the second psalm. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, verse 7. And so the son David stands before you and calls you father. You know you are his father, and you know he is God's only begotten son. So now you know exactly how God did it, nailed himself upon you, and awoke within you, and brought forth his son who calls you on whom he's nailed, calls you father. Now a friend of mine in the audience tonight, she wrote me a letter this past week. She said, I had this wonderful experience. I woke at three in the morning and I can only remember the last part of my dream. I knew my dream came in three parts, but I could only remember the last part. The last part when I woke at three was preparing fruit, all kinds of wonderful ripened fruit, and I was preparing to eat. I woke, I took a pad, I took a pencil, I thought I must remember the first two parts, but I couldn't. I thought if I go back to sleep in the feeling that I could remember them well, then I will. So I went back to sleep. And suddenly, I woke. It was seven in the morning. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw the clock. It was only a matter of moments that I fell asleep. How could it be seven? It was three when I woke and fell back to sleep. How could it be seven? However, I had not a thing written on the pad. The pad was on the bed. The pencil on the bed 
and not one word written on it. So I went about my duties for the day, and at 9.30 the phone rang and my dear friend Jan called, who holds this group, where we all discuss only the Bible and our visions and our dreams. So she called, as she often does. It was 9.30, and she was discussing with me the book of Job. Something she said, I can't for the life of me remember what she said, but it triggered the memory of the dream. Quickly, I recalled the entire parts. The first and second part. It was in my dream. I was actually on a cross, a wooden cross, and then suddenly I'm observing the cross. I am not on it. I am looking at it. But while I was on it, there was no pain, none whatsoever. I'm on a wooden cross, then I'm looking at a cross, and before my eyes the cross seems rooted, and it begins to grow and takes on branches. The whole thing becomes the most wonderful living tree filled with ripened fruit. Here I am now from this ripened tree upon which I was crucified. I am gathering fruit when I awoke at ten. So here another aspect. All these are similar. I'm not going to say that you and I must have the identical. We have the same experience. But it must not be a, a duplicate in the sense that it's a copy. The birth of the child may come differently from my own case. Someone reaches up to his head, holding it from the forehead, and it falls into his arms. That's different. But it doesn't mean that it is not the birth. One is severed from the top to bottom, and one it's a gentle thing. It's not so in my case. Mine was a violent act, but without pain. It was so quick. If I took a sharp, sharp knife now and slit your throat so that you wouldn't feel it, if I really make a quick incision, you wouldn't feel it. The impact is so great. But in my own case, it was terrific, but not any pain. In my friend's case, he said it was a gentle motion like a hot knife through butter, and the ascent was a gentle ascent. It was so in my case, but I will not go out and say it must happen in the way that mine, no one woman is in labor for 24 hours and she opens her mouth and the child is born. The grandmother called me tonight and thanked me for whatever happened. What did I do but assume that she called me that the thing was perfectly done and the child was perfect? The child was three weeks overdue. The little mother, it's typical of this day or that day for the child was born eight pounds and four ounces and three weeks overdue. Still, she got the feeling of going to the hospital. She went and before she could almost... Get on the bed, the child was born. No problem whatsoever. And so in her case, the child was born that way. I know of others in my own circle who labored for 24 hours and 48 hours to bring forth a child that was only five months. So I can't say that because in my own case that it happened the way I recorded it, that that is the way it's going to happen in every case. But I do say the sequence is the same. I do say the child follows on the heels of resurrection. I do say all these things just as I have recorded. I am a witness to the truth of God's word. That's all I can tell you. But to tell you that it must be a duplicate of the way that I have told it would be stupid. Matthew doesn't tell it as Luke does. Matthew speaks of three kings who came and Luke of three shepherds. Shepherds, he didn't say three, but he said shepherds. In my own case, they were normal, ordinary men, and there were three. But in Matthew, he named them as kings and there were brothers who came as kings. Tradition has it that they were kings and all were brothers. In my own case, they were not kings, but they were brothers. They were my brothers, but they were normal, ordinary men that I played with and wrestled with and fought with and loved dearly. But they were my brothers. They certainly were not kings, but they were brothers. So Matthew claimed by tradition that they were brothers, and Luke doesn't claim that they were kings at all or brothers, just ordinary men. 
So I will not go out and say it must happen just as it happened to me. But I promise you, you are a witness. Everything I have told you, you have heard. Who has announced from of old the things to come? Didn't say a word about Russia or America or any president or king or any queen or any person in the world. He's only speaking of his word must unfold in man. So who of old announced the thing to come? Let them tell us what is yet to be. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. When I unfold in you, I do not need any secular world to actually aid it. I will do it while you walk in the secular world, but I am doing it in you. So here the rock will fall upon you. Like this world, it will crush you, but learn from scripture how to live even though it frightens you. You can get out of that state and you dare to assume that you are the man or the woman that you want to be. And that rock, even though it's a mountain, it will change and conform to an easier way for you in this world. If it falls again into another state, dare to apply God's law. Day after day, as Paul said, I die daily. I will die to this and assume that I am that. And when that becomes a mountainous state, I will die to it and assume this. I keep on assuming day after day and changing my fabulous world to make it conform to my ideal, what I want to be in my world. But night after night we fall. So when we fall upon it, what? Our imagination. That's what we fall upon for we are only imagination. So I fall into my imagination and here I am fragmented and each falls into a separate world. So by day we agree to dream in concert. By night we are hurled by our dreams into a separate world. Everyone will experience it. Now some will take this challenge. One lady wrote me, she made a nice design, made a circle and wrote on the outside of the outer circle, imagination is the true man. Then the other man is God in a faint red is I am. And she drew another circle and then a still smaller circle in the inner circle. She divided into six parts of 60 degrees to the section, making 360 degrees for the circle. But at the very center, she said, the father within us, he does the works. And then in each section, she's written as she conceives it, six virtues, faith to do nothing, persistence to do nothing. And she mentions these wonderful six virtues where if she had the courage to do nothing, if the father within me is doing the work, then let me have the faith to do nothing. And so he's bringing forth a witness to his word. But in the meantime, I will assume that I am that which I want to be. And let the Father within me do that while he's working in the depths of my soul, producing a witness to the truth of his word. So faith in the deeper sense is the acceptance of the witness. Can you believe the witness who is a friend? For your own sake, I hope that you do. For you're not going to hurt the witness when he departs by not believing in his testimony. For you are told in scripture, they did not believe him. But he covers the earth anyway. In the third chapter of John, you'll find many verses, and he came bearing witness to what he had seen and heard, and they did not believe him. If said he 
you will not believe that which I have seen and heard of these things of life. How could you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? How could man asleep in the secular world believe for one moment what one could tell him concerning the heavenly things? Wouldn't make sense. And then they would turn completely away from him, so he did not tell them. You'd become completely disturbed if you told of the heavenly things, because you have no symbols on earth to relate them. How are you going to relate them if there is not a thing on earth that you could use to relate what you see that hasn't a thing here to relate it? I know even in these four scenes as the drama unfolds, it frightens one the minute you get to the state called the serpent. The child is all right. That doesn't frighten. Awaking in your skull doesn't frighten, or your skull. But you never thought of yourself as a serpent. Never thought of that symbol in any relationship to self. And it scares. Right there, one is scared. So if these things that must happen to all frightens one, then what are you going to do when others' things begin to happen? You have to lock them within and asleep, he said. It is not yet. I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them. So here, I tell you everyone is going to be a witness to what? To God's word. The word is already printed for us, and you're going to actually duplicate it. The whole thing will unfold within you, and you will be a witness before God. No one can fool him. When you are called, it's because you have done it, and you are called right into his presence, and you are once more the Elohim that you were before you deliberately fell for expansion of the whole. Everyone will once more rise to that state. And if I would suggest anything, just read that Bible. Don't understand it? Read it anyway. Read it. And read it. And read it in the hope. As Paul said in his letter to Timothy, he's about to depart. And he wants to make it very, very clear to Timothy. For he said, my departure is at hand. The time of my departure is here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown definitive not a crown the crown there's only one prize the crown of righteousness here in this he's explaining the letter by paul an apostle of christ jesus by the command of god our savior he pinpoints the savior of the world as god and of christ jesus our hope 1 timothy 1 1 christ jesus is the image of the invisible god so our hope is to be that image for if I only become that image, he will resurrect me, for only Christ is resurrected. Man is saved through resurrection of Christ in him. Remember that Jesus Christ in man is resurrected. There is nothing but Jesus Christ, and he is in every man, and raises himself in man at that appointed hour. But the one who raises him is God the Father, who is looking at his own image, he that is seen is one with the one who beholds him. So I and the Father then are one. So Christ in man is raised. And when he's raised, then this world is left behind. But Christ himself is still buried. That seed of God in everyone in the world, in everyone, he'll be raised and he'll witness. As he's raised, he'll witness to everything said in Scripture. So let the nations rub it out. Can't buy the Bible, I'm told, and, well maybe more than half the world. But if you take Russia and China together, they would represent more than half the world or maybe half the world in population and the Bible is not available. They look upon it as an opiate that keeps man enslaved. So let them keep it away. 
All will come to it eventually. At the end of these lectures, Neville would give two minutes of silence, followed by questions and answers. Now, let us go into the silence. Question, the 30 years, how is that explained? I know it isn't 30 years. Neville says, well, my dear, strangely enough, it is. It is 30 in multiple ways. But you are told in the end of the third chapter of Luke, and Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. That's the end of the third chapter, and then you go right into the seeming genealogy, but he had no genealogy, really. This is an insertion to give it some standing in the secular world. For he's a holy supernatural being. Jesus Christ is supernatural. And it's not some little man walking the earth. It is in you. That makes you breathe. Christ allows everyone to breathe. Because without Christ in man, you couldn't breathe. You'd be simply well dead. And when he begins to breathe in you, you are still until he awakes in you. An automaton. In many respects, one is. When you experience it, It's disturbing, but I can't deny the experience. So when he was about 30, he began it. Well, I know from my own experience, from that moment when Christ, the risen Christ, which is only one man, Christ is God, believe it or not, there's only one God, and that's the risen Christ. You and I are but members of that one body, and he's gathering back his fragmented world into the one body. But this time, instead of being made of dead stones, we are living stones. It's the new Jerusalem, the new body. Each living stone with life in himself 
to make things alive in this world. Everything you will make alive tomorrow, but everything. And so we are gathered one by one into one body. And that one body is Christ Jesus, as we're told. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Ephesians 4, 5. And that is the risen Christ. So I say to everyone, I know Christ is risen, therefore humanity is saved. I don't care what they go through. Let the bomb fall. I hope it doesn't, but you're saved. Why? Because Christ is risen. And that doesn't come when someone calls you dead. No, that's continuity. It's not discontinuity, which you must get to the point of discontinuity. For instead of moving horizontally, you then rise vertically. And I, if I be lifted up from this horizontal motion, I'll draw all men up. One being is drawing all. All are coming into the one body, and you're his body. His body is your body. He's changed your lowly body to be one of one form with his glorious one. That is the most fantastic thing. How can one body contain all? But it does. It was all there to begin with anyway. One Lord who fragmented himself into this more than the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. You can gather all together. It is not the will of our Father that one be lost. So not one is going to be lost. I don't care what he's done. The most violent. Well, I don't have to go into the morning's paper to find someone who kills six people. Just look at Stalin or Hitler. That these things in the world who deliberately took the seeming innocent by the millions and gassed them or shot them or even buried them alive they will still not be lost. That is the love of God. God is all love. That is all love. And everyone is going to be drawn back into his body as a witness to all that he foretold in the beginning. And then we're all the risen Christ. There's only one Christ. Question inaudible. We're told that salvation is of the Jew. All right, here by divine knowledge, put it this way. There are some who are organized by this divine wisdom to be instruments for his pronouncements so he makes from his own scattered body a selection through which he speaks and it's recorded they haven't grown in numbers throughout the centuries we in this country have grown to 200 million people the little place of england they were only a few wild men they grew to 55 million and ruled almost a billion people in the world before they became broken and had to give up india it 400 million and this other place with 60 million and that other million but that little group of wild men they would grow that enormous crowd we have grown to 200 million russia grew to 220 million china to 700 million and yet a little hebrew remains that little hebrew and only 11 million the world always points it out trying to kill it they can't kill it not in eternity will they kill it and when they feel that something is wrong again it's the jew that's at fault i think you would completely overcome it and can't overcome it at all. The minute something goes wrong, it's the Jew all day long, always the Jew. He points at the Jew and blames the Jew for everything in the world. He has all the money in the world, they'd say. Why else would I ask him for a $50 bill? I'm not saying they aren't wealthy Jews and that there are very wealthy Americans who are not Jews. Is Rockefeller a Jew? Are the Mellons Jews? Are the Fords Jews? So you point these up. And they just don't like to talk of that because you pointed this fabulous billions in the hands of others. Are the Kennedys Jews? In two generations they made 400 million. Ask them how. Yet they point to the Jew because someone can afford a better house. 
and wants to have a better house. Well, you say, he always wants to get into a profession. Well, he has to. The Jew was forced into developing this because there are so few of them and he couldn't develop this. So he had to. It was on them. And the world still goes wild trying to say that it's them. You'll never in eternity rub him out. This is God's word. Salvation is of the Jew, the wandering man. He wanders in the world. They think they have a home. That's no home. That'll be scattered too. Little Israel all will be scattered. That's no home. Not intended to have a home. So they think they're home. That's not Israel. That's not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is here, pointing to the skull. Jerusalem from above is called Sarah, and she's our mother who brings us into freedom, and Hagar is from below, the loins who brings us into slavery, so they think that is their home. That's no home. They'll be wiped out. And this Israel certainly wiped out. It was never intended. They were carrying the word of God. Wherever they go, they have it, even in a little place like this. And keep the word alive, and out of this wonderful word will come all. All that comes out other than that, they're called the nations of the world, the goyim, the heathen. So we think that we really understand Christ as we worship Christ. What priest have I ever met who really understands the mystery of life? Question. I'm not talking about the literal meaning. I'm talking about when they say Jews crucified Christ. Now in your meaning, what is meant by the Jew when they crucified Christ? Neville says, that's what the churches teach. Question. But the Bible... Neville says, no, it doesn't. May I tell you, read the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John. No one takes away my life. I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to lift it up again. Verse 18. And then they began to stone him with the literal facts because they did not know what he was speaking. This is all a mystery. Did not Paul say, great indeed is the mystery of our religion? If it's a mystery, then it's a mystery. A mystery is not a mystery. The facts, but a mystery. He said, great indeed. And he's speaking now as he's taking his departure from the world. He's writing his letter to Timothy, the third chapter, the 16th verse. Great indeed is the mystery of our religion. He didn't know it at first. And he went off to destroy everyone who would talk about this. And man began to awaken his God. He thought it was history until Christ appeared in him. The whole thing is simply God unfolding. There is nothing but God. So no one takes away my life. I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down and the power to lift it up again. I spoke earlier tonight from experience of the crucifixion that was ecstatic. No pain whatsoever. No Jew took my life. I willingly contracted to this limit of contraction and opacity that I, after reaching the limit of confinement, would burst the shell and begin to expand beyond the wildest dream into translucency. Good night. This concludes We Are Witnesses by Neville Goddard. There's some beautiful lines in this. Some real top-note greatest hits of Neville. One central element to this unusual lecture is that we are going into our dream states and experiencing these other worlds and then coming back and bringing it back and try to bring it all together. And he talks of the cornerstone, the rock, that either crushes us or breaks us into pieces. Then equating this rock to God, saying that the rock can take many different shapes, that these shapes are actually made within the dream, saying that we all agreed to dream in concert. 
The same room, our reactions differ, but the same room. The mountain is the same mountain. We all see it, and our reactions differ. We all dream in concert. He explains that the scripture is personified as a person, something that Neville always comes back to, that first of all, you understand the scripture and then you experience it, the events happening in the Bible, happening in your life. So I would suggest that Neville probably had all these amazing coincidences starting to happen that were similar to stories that have happened in his life. Let man fall asleep and he is hurled by his dreams into a separate world. Then he conjures from the depth of his soul what he may expect when he returns to this that is so solidly real and so unmovable and so abiding. And I tell you, all this world that is so real and so abiding and so unmovable is just as much imagination as that into which we fall when we are fragmented at night, everyone hurled by a dream into a separate world. And we bring it back, all of our broken self, and we bring it all these pieces into a picture and try to unravel it try to interpret it. This is one of the more energetic lectures. Sometimes, and it's definitely not all the time, but there are times when Neville has lectures that it really doesn't matter what he's saying. The words are packed with vibrational alignment and light in a certain way. The combination of the words, they're like a code. And when I read them, it is so powerful. It just unlocks something else and I felt like this is one of those lectures I would put into that category an important thing to remember at the end of this lecture Neville emphasizes that when you experience your own birth from above which he talks about all the time the promise that it's not a duplicate of what Neville experienced I think a lot of us have expected after reading and listening to Neville talk for a long time that we're supposed to have an experience that's very much duplicate of Neville. And in some of his lectures, he implies it more that it's going to be very much the same. Here, he is saying that it's very much different, that it's never going to happen the same. So everybody's having their own awakening. And so everybody's going to experience these things in the Bible. They'll be symbolic in different ways. He continually emphasizes that none of the modern day that we talk about, the kings and Russia and the United States, is mentioned in the Bible. And there's a reason for that. When he mentions that, he's emphasizing it's not about history, emphasizing that none of this is real. The only thing that's real is found in Scripture. So it's an interesting perspective to contemplate. You might have experienced one of the different portions of the promise like Neville did, and maybe it was very different. So if you have experienced something similar, but different. I believe I've experienced some of this stuff, not knowing what was happening at first and then happening later, which explains a lot more to me that it doesn't have to be an exact duplicate. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com. Check out all the Neville Goddard episodes in the Neville Goddard playlist. There's so many wonderful ones. When you explore them together, they have even greater meanings. The words start to carry different meanings when he talks about them. Check out my art at www.newearth.art and welcome to the Reality Revolution.